I've given myself an incredibly broad title, um, which I won't remotely be able to cover in the 40, 45 minutes that I've got, but I'm going to have a go at just explaining the sort of area that um, I'm interested in, which is, of course, linked to obesity, but is, is, is about children's actual eating habits and, and the foods that they like, their food preferences. So just to give you a little outline of what I'm going to try and cover a bit today is, firstly, what the patterns of children's food preferences are, what they like and what they don't like. And I'm going to go on to talk about the innate taste preferences that, that feed into that. Um, and then move on to individual differences, because there are wide individual differences, obviously, in what children like and don't like. And these come from both genetic and uh, environmental determinants, both of which I'm going to cover in, in, in brief. Um, and the environmental factor I'm going to focus on mostly is parents and the home, because my work's mostly with preschool children. And for them, parents and the home are definitely the principal uh, influence. And then I'm just going to draw um, everything together at the end with a few conclusions. So knowing about food preferences is incredibly important um, because it's so strongly like, uh, linked to intake. Um, and uh, humans as om omnivores obviously have very uh, adaptive um, uh, dental and digestive systems. They can um, uh, eat a wide variety of different foods, which is great because they can adapt to different environments where different sorts of foods are available. But of course, for, for young children, um, the disadvantage is, that, is a need to know very rapidly what's good to eat, what's not good to eat, what's potentially poisonous. Um, and fundamental to the latter is a combination of some innate preferences to lead them in the right, on the right uh, path, together with the ability to learn new preferences. So if we look at children at the age of about 15 months, um, it's quite interesting to see um, zero on this graph is basically sort of neutral. So basically children of 15 months like all sorts of foods pretty equally, um, with a sort of slight um, um, uh, larger um, liking for dairy foods, presumably because they're not far out of the milk feeding period, and that's still very important at this age. But if you look at, the, these are the same children at three, um, while preferences for fatty and sugary foods have, um, have remained pretty much the same, uh, liking for everything else has started to tail off um, somewhat, um, especially liking for vegetables, which won't surprise anybody. Um, and if we go on into later years, this was a large-scale survey that Jane and I did um, a few years ago um, of children in the compulsory school years from 5 to 16. You'll see that the effect is, is, is magnified even more. Basically, vegetables are barely, barely tolerated, where fatty and sugary foods are, are way ahead of the game. What's quite nice to see is that fruit is actually very popular, um, but of course this doesn't, the fruit's popularity doesn't actually really translate into intake for lots of different reasons that um, uh, are, are fairly poorly understood actually. But what you see in uh, at between 5 and 15, this is fairly new data from the Health Survey for England, is that around 10% of children don't eat uh, eat less than one portion of fruit and vegetables a day, and only about 20% are consuming the recommended levels. So it's a big problem. And they're also 
just ask, um, all the acknowledged there, all those from um, British data? Yes, all this British data. I'll, I'll, I'll say when it's not. Um, uh, again, from the Health Survey of England, for England, children of the same age are consuming excess uh, saturated fat and non-milk extrinsic sugars, it, mostly in the form of fizzy drinks. So, um, we're not getting there with diet. Uh, obviously, we all know that uh, the press is full of stories about the impact of poor diets on health. Um, we know that uh, poor diet can lead to a variety of chronic diseases um, and can have an impact, um, both in, uh, in immediate in impact on children's health as well as uh, in the longer term. There's, it's been estimated that uh, poor diet, uh, the results of poor diet cost the NHS nearly £6 billion annually, and the WHO has estimated that 1.1% of all disability-adjusted life years are the result of low fruit and vegetable intake, as are 2.9% of global deaths. Um, and it's considered poor diet is supposed to um, be responsible for uh, roughly 4.4% of the overall burden of disease in Europe. So it's a serious business. Uh, in terms of uh, overweight prevalence, I'm sure you're all uh, well aware that um, even our youngest children are uh, 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 displaying um, overweight and obesity. <coughs> That's alarming level. So children of reception age, so four to five-year-olds, are now almost 25% are overweight or obese. By the time they reach uh, the age of 10 or 11, it's more like a third. So really shocking figures. Um, the Foresight Report, which was um, uh, uh, um, designed to try and explain some of the determinants of obesity came up with some diagrams that are pretty horrifically complex and nobody would deny it's not a very complex problem. But today I'm going to stick to some <laughs> just very basic, um, uh, sort of one little sort of aspect of that, which is the innate genetic and environmental um, determinants, influences on food preferences, on the assumption that these affect food intake, uh, which of course then affect weight status and health. So that's what we're going to start with. So starting with innate taste preferences, um, this uh, baby uh, is two weeks old at the time these uh, photographs were taken and had been exclusively breastfed up until that point. And this is his reaction to being given some water, which is fairly neutral. Um, this is him being given a sucrose solution where, and his response is to lick his lips and look around perhaps if they see if there's any more coming. Very enthusiastic. And in stark contrast, that's what he looks like given lemon juice. Um, rears his head away, frowns, tries to spit it out. And just in case you think we don't like torturing tiny babies, here are two more having lemon juice for the first time. So it's a very, very clear <laughs> reaction. It's bad being the, the child of a diet researcher. <laughs> they're, all, they're all research centre babies. Um, so, um, so a clear liking for sweet, dislike of sour and bitter tastes. Um, and that, if, if we were to do that the minute babies were born, you would still see exactly that. 
and, and that is a universal. Um, sort preference seems to emerge around four months and doesn't seem to be the result of learning. Children just look as if they uh, uh, appear to uh, prefer salty tastes at four months. Um, we don't think that's learnt. It is um, innate in some way, but doesn't, doesn't, isn't present at birth. We also know that children are predisposed to prefer, prefer energy-dense foods or foods that deliver more calories per gram, and there's lots and lots of uh, meat. Sorry? There's a question, when does taste for bitterness or dislike of bitterness it's, it, that's also innate. I didn't show you pictures particularly, but that's, that, that, they make a similar expression to that in uh, there. And actually, most mammals do. If you, I, I have got a set of slides of a baby rat also being given these tastes, and they're surprising similarities in the sort of, um, if you could call a rat having an expression, similar, similar movements of the, of the face. Um, so there are quite a few studies, that, uh, experimental studies that have been done looking at um, whether children learn to prefer um, energy-dense foods. Um, this particular study, uh, children were given yogurts of a variety of flavours and um, after trying, uh, a, a, they were a variety of flavours and a variety of fat content. And children, after ex being exposed to these, children learned to, seemed to learn to prefer the flavours that were associated with the higher fat um, yogurts. So since energy density is not a taste per se, um, preference appears to be learned through the experience of the post-ingested consequences of, of eating foods with lots of calories. So that would be a nice feeling of fullness and, and satiation after eating certain foods, and that becomes associated with that food or that flavour. Um, so these are universal taste preferences, um, and these probably evolved in more hostile food environments um, in order to ensure adequate energy intake and to avoid toxic effects. So it sort of makes sense that if you like sweet foods, Sweetness probably indicates ripeness, probably indicates energy density, so that would be a good thing to, to uh, be predisposed to like. Whereas the presence of uh, sour tastes, bitter tastes might indicate um, uh, sort of um, contamination of some kind or, or the presence of toxins which might be dangerous. So it kind of makes sense that we would have those inbuilt preferences. But anyway, as well as differences between foods in the extent that we like them, obviously there are wide individual differences between children. Um, and children's various eating behaviour traits seem to, uh, some of them certainly seem to affect preferences for certain types of foods, for the quantity of food consumed, and ultimately, of course, uh, weight status. So some of the eating behaviour traits that I, um, I'm, I'm sort of talking about here are things like neophobia, which we is a sort of uh, avoidance of novel flavours and foods which seems to emerge in most children to a greater or lesser extent around the age of two. Uh, very, very common. Um, related but not exactly the same sort of food fussiness, the kind of um, very children who have a very limited dietary re repertoire. Um, what is termed enjoyment of food, which of course is self-explanatory. Just ch children vary in the extent to which they just enjoy eating, full stop. 
Um, something we've also looked at is tiety responsiveness or the sort of tendency to get full very quickly and not be able to finish large quantities of food. Children vary in that respect. And finally, food responsiveness or the sort of tendency to overeat when food is in, in the vicinity, regardless of whether one's hungry or not, and children vary in that. And what we know is that these um, do affect eating and weight. For example, neophobia, uh, the sort of fear of novel foods and fussiness, are associated particularly with de decreased consumption of vegetable food and protein foods, but not with consumption of, say, starchy foods or fattery, sugary foods. You don't see any particular differences with fussy children, but just the, the sort of core foods. Uh, satiety responsiveness, the tendency to get full up quickly, has been associated with lower BMI, fairly logically, and, and conversely, the sort of children who um, uh, are responsive to food just in the area and just um, you know eat whatever's there, regardless of whether they're hungry or not, has been linked to overweight. Now, both food preferences and eating behaviour traits are influenced to some extent by both genetic and environmental factors. And twin studies, of course, allow us to separate these two out to look at their relative contribution. So that's what I'm going to talk about now is some of our twin work. Um, now, in order to estimate the heritability of um, uh, um, any particular trait, um, using twins um, enables us to, uh, to look at that, well, yeah. The, by heritability, I mean the proportion of the variance in the trait that can be ascribed to genetic influences, which of course can vary from 0 to 100%. Twin studies look at the resemblance between pairs of twins, both monozygotic identical twins and dizygotic non-identical twins. So since monozygotic twins share 100% of their genes and dizygotic twins up to 50%, and they share the environment, they live in the same house, they have the same parents, they're exactly the same age, they probably go to the same school. So broadly speaking, the environment can be held steady and the only thing that's differing between these two is the extent to which they're genetically related. So if identical twins are more similar than non-identical twins in any given trait, then we know that genes are involved to, us to some extent. Um, and then um, once we've established that, that MZs are more uh, similar than DZs, we can go into very complex twin heritability analyses to get uh, proper estimates of the relative um, contribution of genes the shared environment, and then there's another figure that we uh, get from these analysis, which is a unique environment effect, which includes error, but also includes anything within the environment that might affect one twin and not the other. So that would be something like actually just being ill or some, something like that, um, something that they don't share. So our Gemini twin cohort uh, is comprises 2,400 pairs of twins uh, born in England and Wales in 2007. Some identical, some non-identical. We've got enormous amounts of data on all sorts of things, but what I'm going to talk about today is what we've got on food preferences and eating behaviours. Um, 
These are collected regularly by, via parent report. And the data I'm talking about today is about when the children were three. We have data right from birth uh, up to date, which is around the age of four to five. Um, so when we looked at food preferences in the twins, the mums very bravely undertook to fill in a food preference questionnaire of 115 items, saying how much their twins liked whatever uh, the item was at the moment. Um, and they had to answer for both twins. Um, so they would either say uh, the twins had never tried something or uh, ranked their liking on a scale from dislikes to like dislikes a lot to likes a lot. And then fussiness, we used um, a subscale from um, Jane's CEBQ, the Child Eating Behaviour Questionnaire, Jane Wardle's questionnaire, which looks at the extent to which children have a sort of um, uh, a difficult relationship with food, are hard to feed, have a limited variety of food and so on. That's six items, such as my child is difficult to please with meals. Um, we did a principal components analysis of the food preference questionnaire to look to see what kind of foods clustered together in terms of liking and what we found was that they clustered together in very logical, understandable, traditional categories. So we had a category of vegetables, fruit, protein, dairy and non-core. Um, and if a child tended to like one kind of vegetable, they tended to like other vegetables, so that their preferences clustered together within categories, um, and the non-core group comprised sort of generally junk-ish foods, both savoury and sweet. Um, so first of all, we looked at whether you know liking one kind of food meant you were just generally a food liker. So you can see that actually all food preferences are uh, highly uh, are correlated to a greater or lesser extent. Um, vegetable, fruit, and protein liking kind of um, are, the, are very uh, strongly linked, um, as are non-core food and dairy food. But um, they're all they're all significantly correlated. And what you see with food fussiness is that, uh, similar to um, what I was saying earlier, fussy children. It's fussiness seems to be more around vegetable, fruit and protein foods, the, the mo most important foods, at least here, although it is actually a, a significant um, correlation with uh, liking for non-core foods. So when we looked at the differences between uh, the similarities um, within twin pairs, you can see here that the blue bars are all the um, identical twins, the red bars are the non-identical twins and you can see that for every kind of food um, the uh, identical twins are more similar than the non-identical twins. Uh, and when you break that down, go into the, the full uh, uh, heritability analyses, um, we find that for uh, vegetables, fruit and protein, if you like the core sort of foods, um, the analyses estimate a roughly 50% heritability for liking for those foods. Um, dairy and non-core foods are more dictated by the environment that the children seem to be in. Um, and with the core foods, the shared environment still has quite a large effect, slightly less for the dairy and non-core foods. And um, the non-shared environment is, 
influence is fairly minimal. So that's just an illustration of how the sort of hierarchy of, of, um, of heritability for the different kinds of food groups. Uh, it's just a, another way of looking at it. But we also know that um, eating behaviours and weight are, are highly heritable. So to, just to, as an example, I've taken three kind of eating behaviours here. Satiety sensitivity, that um, uh, tendency to get full quickly enjoyment of food and speed of eating. If we look at those, you can see again that the differences that, that uh, MZ twins are much more similar than DZ twins and the estimates of heritability for these three traits are 63%, 75% and 62%, so highly, highly heritable. Um, and likewise, BMI and waist circumference, you can see that MZs and DZs um, differ almost uh, twice as um, similar NZs than um, DZs. And I, actually, this is the best illustration of all of that, I think. If you look on the uh, left, the monozygotic twins are really remarkably similar in body size, height, and so on. And particularly in the top middle groups, they're, I mean, incredibly dissimilar amongst the so that's a, a very good illustration of quite how heritable uh, weight and height, uh, body mass indexes. So large genetic influences on food preferences, on weight status and on eating behaviour. But of course environmental influences uh, can have a, a very profound effect on children's eating and weight. So of course, there are multiple levels at which the environment influences children's uh, eating. Of course, at the societal level, cultural norms, social norms and the media have um, an influence a bit closer to home, the neighbourhood, the extent to which there are food shops nearby and what the sort of food shops they are, uh, rules around food in schools, um, fast food outlets in the uh, neighbourhood all have an impact on children's eating. Um, at the uh, le at social level, friends and all sorts of significant others affect children's um, food choices. And of course, as I said at the beginning, the, one of the most important, uh, the most important influences on the youngest of children are siblings and parents and caregivers, what goes on in the family, basically. And parents uh, can have an influence right from the beginnings of life. We know that um, in, the pre in utero, babies over the course of nine months swallow a good deal of amniotic fluid, which um, is flavoured with the mother's diet. Um, they receive, uh, not all foods transmit and not all to the same extent, but we, get, we have, uh, studies have shown that, that, that Certain flavours are and uh, odours are detectable in amniotic fluid. Certain things that mothers eat transmit, um, and that goes on. Of course, if a mum chooses to breastfeed, um, a, a variety of foods have been sh shown to transmit flavours have been shown, shown to transmit via breast milk, um, amongst which are mint, um, carrots, garlic, wine, um, all sorts of things. Um, and these uh, 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 
group of studies, mostly done in the States, uh, show that this exposure at this stage to different flavours has uh, quite a lasting impact on food acceptance in children. So this is just one illustration. Um, uh, this is one of many studies by Julie Manella at the Monal Chemical Centre uh, in the States. Um, this was a group of pregnant women who were recruited um, if they were planning to breastfeed. And they were assigned to three groups. One group were given large quantities of carrot juice and asked to consume it uh, during the last trimester of their pregnancy and to stop once they'd given birth and to drink water while breastfeeding. Another group, the other way round, water in pregnancy, asked to consume carrot juice while breastfeeding. And a third group who were not given carrot juice at all. And the babies born to mums in groups one and two showed dis uh, neg less negative expressions in response to carrot in response to carrot flavour at weaning, and group one were perceived by mums to like the flavour more, with a non-significant tendency to eat more. Now, there were fairly small groups, and uh, it may have been a lack of power that uh, prevented us seeing a, a tendency to eat more, but certainly they appear to be much more accepting of that flavour, way down the line um, from having uh, been exposed to it. So parents have a profound influence um, in a variety of ways. I'm just going to talk about um, sort of four, really, today. First, just very obviously, just making foods available and accessible uh, increases the likelihood of children eating and enjoying them. Um, act parents acting as a role model is very, very important. Children are, are, are um, strongly influenced by the behaviour of their parents. I'm going to talk a bit about exposure techniques, regular tasting of new foods to increase acceptance. And finally, parents' actual feeding practices, the actual sort of things that they do to encourage children to eat. Um, so, uh, entirely logically, foods that are in the home, children tend to like more. They, children like foods that they're familiar with. Adolescents report that they're Food, that whatever's in the house is an important factor in their food preferences. These are things that they see around them all the time and they regularly eat. Familiarity is very important. But also it matters that food is accessible. So in this US study, um, fruit and veg intake was seen to be higher in children whose mums made food um, not only available in the house but accessible and uh, you know, freely available. So mums who had, say, a fruit bowl, which the child was able to help themselves to, or who kept carrot sticks, cherry tomatoes or whatever in a bowl in the fridge that the child could also help themselves to, that, that um, was associated with greater intake overall. Um, moving on to modelling, um, watching others eat uh, has, a, has a very strong effect on children's food choices. Um, and in fact, in many species of mammals and indeed birds, you see this social facilitation effect um, that, that um, if uh, a common specific is seen eating something that's unfamiliar, the others will actually watch, see that nothing terrible happens and follow suit. There's about sort of learned safety, observing somebody else doing something without any adverse effect encourages children and animals to accept something novel. 
And in the case of children, parents can be models, siblings, peers, teachers, all act very well as models to a growing child. I'm just going to give you one little neat little study that showed this. This is an American study. Again, this is a small number of preschool children, but they were offered mango at mealtimes. This is something they hadn't had before. And they were divided into two groups. One group was seated with a teacher who um, tried the mango as well and was very enthusiastic about it. And the other group sat, with a, uh, sat on their own just with each other around a table trying the mango. And this was done over a series of meals. And what you see is that the ones who were sitting with the enthusiastic teacher ate after an initial dip, um, ate more at each meal. Um, and the reverse effect happened with the control group. So, so watching someone else doing something for young, very young children is very powerful. I'm going to just talk a bit about exposure, um, so by which I'm just sort of mean the experience of tasting things. Um, what we know is that the more often you taste something, again, totally logically, the more familiar it becomes. Familiarity is one of the strongest predictors of children's preferences. What they know is what they like. Um, and that, while not a perfect relationship with intake, is certainly a, a very strong predictor. In a nutshell, as I say, children eat what they like and they like what they know. So familiar, the familiar is good. Um, and the unfamiliar is uh, potentially dangerous. Or Many children seem to react that way. Um, repeated exposure to tastes increases liking, increases intake. And we saw that in utero, and this is actually true throughout the lifespan. If you, there's something you don't like, um, or, well, I, I, I like the example of sugar in tea or coffee. If one's tried to give that up, first time you taste it the other way, the way you're not used to, it doesn't taste good. If you keep going with it for a couple of weeks, after two weeks, it tastes, be tastes better. And that's just basically the, the, the principle behind an awful lot of research looking at whether we can use this, this sort of um, this idea to increase children's liking for the sort of foods that they don't think that they like to begin with. So the basic experimental procedure for all these studies is that you start with a pretest, you give um, children or whoever um, uh, and sort of unlimited amount of whatever the food is to begin with. You ask them to eat as much as they'd like. You take a note of that. Then one group has a taste, a small taste, very important that it's a small taste, every day for 14 days. And then you repeat the taste test at the end. And what we find time and time again is that both intake and liking are increased after the 14 days. And for 10 to 14 days is pretty much needed for adults and children, small children. So in home settings, we've seen that the more often that children are offered foods and see their family enjoying them, the greater their acceptance of it. But what we do know, if we ask parents, is that they typically give up. If they give the child something two or three times and the child goes, oh, I don't like it, it's not offered again. And what we know from the research is that 10 is, it's a magic 10, really, and, and it's the minimum. And that's sort of counterintuitive to parents, is why they don't sort of, you know, naturally do that. You could understand why. Um, 
Right, moving on. The, the sort of actual actions and strategies that parents employ to encourage their children to eat. That's what I'm just going to move on to here. And I'm going to talk about three of the most sort of studied types of, um, of parenting, parent feeding practices. The first one is restriction, of course, and mums who say you can't have any sweets at all. And that can either be a sort of overt restriction in the... the you know, the sweets are in a jar on a high shelf and they can't get at them, or possibly they're just not in the house. That's what we mean by restriction. Pressure to eat is another um, um, sort of parental strategy that um, has been widely studied. This is a, the sort of finish everything on your plate idea, which actually is, I don't think is as common as it was in my childhood, but, um, but certainly still mums believe that children should finish. Um, what they've been given. And finally, instrumental feeding or, to all intents and purposes, bribery. Um, and many parents use these sorts of practices. If you eat your peas, you can have some ice cream. Or if you eat your peas, you can go out and play or something along those lines. Um, and this is a lovely example of some um, overt restriction and, and the effect that it has. So these are three to five-year-olds who at baseline are given a range of snacks to choose from, to, to try, sorry, and they are asked to rate their liking for those snacks. And two are chosen which are equally liked by the children at the beginning. They're then sat down at a table and there's a jar in the middle of the table with a lid on it which is full of snack B, if you like, and snack A is freely available all around the table. And the children are just told, this is tw snack time, 20 minutes, um, have whatever you like that's on the table. But you can't have that one in the middle. And then sometime in the middle of this 20-minute period, the lid comes off the, thing, the jar in the middle, and they're given two minutes free access to the ones in the middle. And... Not hugely surprising, the children express more desire for the ones in the middle. They, 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 they've taken on a sort of value by being restricted that then means that the children eat them to excess. They ate more of those than they ate the ones that were freely available to them. So by restricting them, you're giving them a, you know, the, it's the opposite effect that, uh, to the one they would want. So, pretty counterproductive. Pressurizing children to eat more. Uh, again, it, this is a, um, a US study, I think, where children were given soup um, and very simple. Half of them were told it regularly, every couple of minutes, come on, finish your soup, finish your soup. You've got to finish it all. And the other group weren't pressured at all. And the children who'd been pressured afterwards just liked the soup less, you know, just generally hadn't enjoyed the whole process. But their liking for this soup had gone gone down. And I mean, I think, I don't know, I certainly have memories of being forced to eat things when I was little that I carry to this day. Um, <laughs> it's a really, you know, it's a very strong effect. I'm, I can't look at mashed potato to this day. Um, and these sorts of um, uh, practices not only have a, a, an impact on children's liking, but can actually, um, in the long term, kind of um, affect their um, the way they eat and their weight status long term. So and this has been looked at in, in survey studies, in experimental research, both cross-sectionally and longitudinally. And, and what happens if you restrict too much is what happened in that neat little experiment that children 
when that restricted food becomes available, they suddenly pile in and eat too much of it because it's, you know, it's going to go away in a minute, so I need to you know, eat it now. Um, and uh, pressure to eat, being made to eat beyond the point at which a child has had enough, um, A, makes them feel bad about that particular food, but also kind of overrides their feelings of fullness. It's sort of giving the message that just, you know, fullness is not something to be taken any notice of. If there's still food, you've got to eat it. And both these can kind of disrupt children's <coughs> self-regulatory abilities, which they actually have quite good ability to self-regulate when they're very little. And that seems to diminish over time. One can uh, speculate that that's actually because they experience all these sorts of things, uh, these sorts of practices. But, you know, a, a, a sort of two to three-year-old, there's studies that show that if you give them a massive great sort of preload, as it were, a calorific starter, they are able to then moderate the amount of the next course that they eat. Um, to kind of compensate for, for the, the extra calories they've taken in, whereas older children don't do that. Um, and so it's actually really important that we get over to parents that, you know, a bit of, you know, how much a child eats, for example, is, should really be up to them. So finally, one of my major interests was in um, the, 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 the last of these techniques, the sort of instrumental reward giving. And until quite recently, this was regarded as, as a, a really bad idea for um, um, encouraging children to eat food, um, healthy foods because it would it appeared to create a sort of decrease in liking for that food. The idea that sort of their intrinsic motivation to eat it would be undermined by being rewarded for it, an extrinsic reward. And indeed, we've done studies ourselves where we found that just exposing children, just offering them a taste every day, was actually more effective than giving them a taste every day with a sticker in terms of um, building up liking and uh, intake. But we've always had a sort of a, a significant minority of fussy children who just won't get started in that tasting in the first place. So that, together with the fact that parents use this strategy all the time, and that it doesn't seem to be anything we can do to stop them, it seemed to us that it would be uh, desirable to try and do some studies to look at how rewards could be given in a way that wouldn't diminish liking, but would increase intake, and so on. I have to say that although lots of parents use them, a lot of them do feel uneasy about it. They sort of know it's wrong, but, um, but, but find it is effective, certainly in the short term, for increasing intake. Anyway, so on to the tiny taste studies, which were two separate studies, one carried out in schools and one taken into the home and carried out by parents, in which we looked at the impact of a, a three exposure conditions. So children receiving tastes of a vegetable every day for, for 12 days, but with three differences. One first group were given a reward if they tasted the, the uh, vegetable, which was a sticker. Um, a second group were praised heartily for uh, eating what the vegetable offered. There was an exposure group alone, which actually was quite difficult to do because this was a sort of, you know, we had to kind of just give them the food and kind of say nothing, which doesn't come very naturally, it's very difficult, but we wanted it to be very much just a, 
an exposure condition without the praise. And then we had a no treatment control condition. And this was basically the same in both studies. Um, we did the school-based study uh, first because it enabled us to tap into a lot of children at one time to, to get us a kind of proof of concept idea. And then we wanted to see if it would work in the home. So this is where um, we've just... <laughs> my slides went back blank on the way here <laughs> somehow. And we've just cut... Just before you all arrived... Um, cut and pasted these from the actual paper. This is the first of these studies. This is the um, school-based study. So what you can see is that the solid line at the top is the exposure, um, uh, the two, uh, social reward is the praise, which is actually um, sort of at the top here, and the exposure plus tangible reward is the dotted uh, slashed line below that, the one below that is the exposure alone, and then we've got the control group at the bottom. And what you can see is that all three exposure groups ended up significantly liking their vegetable more over the um, uh, uh, intervention period, which is that first period, and then these two other measurements are taken um, one month and uh, three months later, and the children have had no rewards between times. But what we haven't seen, what's really important, is that we've seen an increase in liking in all three groups. And what we haven't seen is a decrease um, in the groups that are receiving a reward. So we have, haven't undermined, we've managed to achieve the exposure, but we haven't undermined um, the liking. And very importantly, the, the thing that the tangible reward group had above the others was that we had 100% compliance. They tasted every day because they were going to get a sticker. We didn't quite get that in the praise group. So that was a really that was a really important thing. We didn't have any fussy eaters saying no. Um, and we saw um, even greater effects on intake with with the uh, reward, the sticker group being way ahead of everybody else. So, and maintaining that over time, not um, tailing off. So very pleased with that. Basic replication of that. I'm sorry, again, the slides have gone and we haven't put these in, but similar, very similar findings in the home, except the praise is much less successful in the home than, than the sticker reward. Um, so in order to think about whether this might be a sort of, uh, able to be a kind of standalone, disseminable in intervention, we've developed a pack based on the uh, research called Tiny Taste, and we've actually tested that tested that in our Gemini cohort, just sending it out with instructions and going, off you go, and asking them to do some taste tests for us and report back. And we've got really lovely results um, uh, in terms of intake and liking, as well as lots and lots of feedback. What One of the nice things was that we managed to, because um, the Gemini families are sort of, they're quite, um, well, they, we have a good relationship with them. We've got good feedback as to whether it, this thing was useful, whether they would recommend it to a friend, whether they'd be prepared to, um, you know, whether they'd use it again. Many of them did use it again spontaneously without being sort of told to. So we're very, very, very pleased with that. Now, just to tell you where we're going in the future, um, we're aware that infants are particularly receptive to new tastes uh, and require a hell of a lot fewer, fewer exposures than older children. And actually, children, babies, up their intake 
dramatically after only two or three tries of something, rather than the 10 or 12 needed for adults or, or even toddlers. There are people um, that I work with who strongly believe that there are actually sensitive periods for food acceptance, and that between four and six months, sorry, Department of Health, but between four and six months, not at six months, um, babies are, um, are particularly receptive to new tastes um, and that solid textures really need to be introduced good and early to get um, you know, good uh, dietary variety and so on into children uh, in later life. And we thought, well, maybe weaning is a really good time to intervene, especially in terms of getting children to like vegetables because it really is a thorny problem, as any mum will tell you. So the, the study we're working on at the moment is a weaning intervention where we're asking parents to use vegetables as first weaning foods. And it's an RCT comparing our intervention with usual care. And we've got a three, it's a three-centre study with roughly 100 parents in the UK, Portugal, Greece. And what we do is we ask mums to give, obviously in puree form, but it's just an example of to choose five vegetables and to offer them a change every day um, in the first 15 days of weaning. Um, and after that to introduce other foods, but to make sure they get this three exposures, but, but five days apart. Um, because there are lots of other studies that suggest that rapid changes make children much more open to new flavours. So you do all this and then you give them a novel food, which is what we're doing, um, and the, the hypothesis would be that the children who've done this will be much more ready to accept a normal food. So, results on the way, but not here yet. Um, oh, sorry, just so you can see that we don't always torture our babies. Those are some of our taste babies. So, food preferences result of a complex interplay between genetic and environmental factors, leading to wide individual differences between children. Those innate taste preferences, together with a food environment that's full of uh, um, variety, of palatable foods, lots and lots of foods everywhere, mean that healthy diets are hard to enforce, and, and stopping a child uh, becoming obese is extremely challenging at times. Nevertheless, I think um, the research shows that the home environment can be incredibly influential um, and genetic predispositions are destiny, can be modified by the right sort of feeding practices and so on. And sort of we're in the business really uh, of doing more and more research so that we can develop evidence-based guidance for parents so that, um, that we can help them to improve their children's diets and with a knock-on effect, we hope, of of having some impact on the disastrous obesity epidemic that we're facing. Um, I just want to acknowledge my colleagues at the HBRC and the Gemini families and our funders of our various research.